Welcome to episode 46 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Phase three data, as well as the combined six phase two clinical trials, show that about two in three people get better, and that's fantastic. But that means one in three people are not getting better. Some of those people are actually getting worse. Hi. I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Dr. Stephen Bright, a clinically trained psychologist and senior lecturer on addiction at Edith Cowan University. Dr. Bright is the director of PRISM, the Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine organization, which is a not-for-profit independent research charity developing medical and legal processes for the application of psychedelic medicines for improving well-being in Australia. In this conversation, Dr. Bright and I explore the research currently being conducted in Australia and the pathway from a regulatory and cultural perspective of getting this therapy standardized in the Australian culture. Today's podcast is brought to you by talklink.com.au, a modern and approachable mental health directory helping Australians connect with the right mental health practitioner. All of the practitioners, so that psychologists, counsellors and psychotherapists, are available to see clients straight away. There are no waiting lists. They're all independent, licensed and insured and they can see clients in person or online. The great thing about TalkLink is that you can see a short video of the therapist to get to know them a little, check out their training and experience as well as pricing in a transparent way to decide if this is someone that you would like to connect with. Okay, let's dive in. Sure, so I'm Dr. Stephen Bryant. I am a clinically trained psychologist. Um, I've worked clinically uh, primarily with people experiencing substance use disorder, comorbid with other mental health conditions. And in 2018, moved uh, back to Perth, Western Australia, where I am working as a senior lecturer um, in addiction studies and uh, doing some research here at Edith Cowan University as an academic. Excellent. And what's your relationship with um, with MAPS and with PRISM? Why don't you introduce those two affiliations for us? Sure. So Psychedelic Research and Science Medicine is a not-for-profit company that was founded in 2011 following a visit to Australia by Dr. Um, Dr. Rick Doblin, uh, who's the, the executive officer and founder of MAPS. Um, Essentially, Rick was presenting the first uh, data from a phase two clinical trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD and really encouraged us to try to replicate something here in Australia. And so we had the option of potentially setting up like a MAPS Australia, but we decided it would be better for us to have uh, more independence. And so in many respects, PRISM is like MAPS Australia, except we are our, you know, we are our own organization, which is probably for the best because we've diversified since initially um, founding PRISM so that we're now conducting research, not only with MDMA, but also with psilocybin. Excellent. Okay. So you have a close relationship with MAPS then? Yeah, we do. Um, MAPS have provided the MDMA for my clinical trial for free. And they also provided us with the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy training for free uh, in 2018. Okay, great. It's not every day that you have a relationship with an entity overseas that gives you free MDMA, right? (laughs) No, no. And, and look, the, the, the hardest part was actually importing it. Funnily enough, it's, it's not that easy to import uh, MDMA from the US. Huh. Why is that not a surprise at all? 
Um, uh, well, MDMA, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, are you currently a director at MAPS? No, uh, nobody involved in PRISM is uh, employed or a director of MAPS. Um, yeah, we, we're, we're completely independent. So um, PRISM is made up of six directors of which I am one. And um, yeah, we, we have other directors. Um, the, the executive officer is Dr. Martin Williams, who's a, a, a psychopharmacologist um, and working at Monash University, doing a trial of psilocybin um, or, or looking at psilocybin essentially on brain activity of people that meditate. And he's also the co-principal investigator of the St. Vincent's trial, uh, looking at psilocybin assisted psychotherapy for people with uh, terminal illness. Right. I definitely want to dig into those. Maybe um, why don't we just start with a, a brief um, recap? We've already connected in um, with some researchers in the space of uh, psychedelic research, but maybe let's just set the scene for us. What are we talking about? What is MDMA and psilocybin? Uh, contextualize that for us. And then um, let's maybe talk about the research and why it's such an interesting space. Sure. So Essentially, psilocybin was being investigated as a potential therapeutic agent around the same time as LSD. And when LSD was banned, psilocybin was banned as well. And the banning of those uh, compounds you know, led to a significant reduction in research such that it pretty much finished up in the, the mid, mid-70s. Uh, there was one hospital left in the US that was still doing research on uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy for people with um, terminal illness. And I guess um, partly as a consequence of the prohibition of psilocybin, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy emerged um, as an alternative drug-assisted treatment. And so it was completely legal um, to, be, to be doing that treatment in the US up until 19, around 1984, 1986, when the US um, prohibited MDMA because a bit like LSD, and psilocybin, um, the people became aware that it had potential recreational uses. And so its recreational use became quite popular in the 80s in the US. And that led to the, to the government banning it. And essentially why we're doing research now with psilocybin and MDMA and not LSD is because one, every LSD has kind of a bad reputation after the 60s, whereas um, less people knew what psilocybin was 10 years ago. I think that's changed significantly now, um, but it has you know more positive things attached to it than LSD, but also LSD has quite a long effect. And so a session, LSD session could last 12 hours, whereas a psilocybin session lasts six and an MDMA session around eight hours. That's still a long time to be under a significant influence, right? Particularly if you're doing some soul searching work and I'm sure we'll dive into this, but all those, all those times are still fairly long, aren't they? Yeah. Well, particularly with the MDMA, um, it requires an overnight stay. Um, so in Australia, we're doing that in a hospital in the U S uh, there's usually facilities within a private practice clinic for that overnight stay. So it is a long time, but it's, it's also for the, for the participant, but it's also a long time for the, the co-therapy team, you know, doing it, doing an eight hour session uh, with somebody is, is quite a long time to, to be with a person and holding space for, and being present for that, you know, for that, the totality of that time. Mm. I guess whenever I talk to people about psychedelic therapy, without exception, we'd start to use a, con a context setting 
um, set of terms, things like, um, you know, psilocybin is the active compound from magic mushrooms and MDMA is, you know, often one of the many ingredients in ecstasy. Um, and often when I speak to researchers or clinicians in this space, they get really uncomfortable when we make those connections. Um, I, do I don't feel get like uncomfortable. That? No, not at all. Okay. I mean, because I've um, essentially worked primarily throughout my career in the addiction and substance use space, um, I, I came in at the, I came into this field with a slightly different perspective than, than many people that haven't come from that background because, you know, I was quite familiar um, but before all of this research had started with, um, you know, David Nutt's work ranking the potential harms of drugs and, and magic mushrooms and, and ecstasy ranked very low compared to other substances. So um, I, I think it is important to make that connection because, um, I, I, I think some of the stigma associated with drug use is it, it's problematic for people who use substances. It, it affects their ability to get better. It affects their ability to engage in treatment. And this the internalization of that stigma by healthcare professionals has been shown to reduce the quality of care as well. So I think anything that we can do to challenge that stigma is a positive thing. And of course, you know, as, as you kind of alluded to, ecstasy may or may not contain MDMA. Um, magic mushrooms are probably always going to contain psilocybin, but um, you can still make a distinction between um, the illicit market in which these products are being sold and, and the lack of quality control and, and some of the, the dangers if people try to do some DIY MDMA therapy, for example, because they're not going to be able to access um, pharmaceutical grade MDMA, in addition to not being able to access the actual psychotherapy that goes with it. But I, I actually think it is important to make those connections so that we can provide some harm reduction information. Mm. Okay. So psychedelic assisted therapy is all the rage right now. Everyone seems to be interested in it and talking about it. Um, why is that? What's happened? What are we seeing? What's the research? Yeah, well, I think that the early data is promising, but it is only early data. I think the reason for the hype is multifactorial. It's coming from um, some of the, the early promising data. And I have to say, not all of the data is, is as promising um, as, I guess, the stories that make the, the headlines. But, you know, people are attracted to this really positive, uh, this really positive data. I think, um, in general, clinicians over time get a little burnt out and you know if you're seeing clients that that aren't getting better um or, or there's a bit of a revolving door in a clinic with with clients coming back um the idea of a new treatment option is always quite appealing um and and you know i, I think i saw the same thing when i graduated 20 years ago and people were gravitating towards things like acceptance commitment therapy um people saw this as a as a new treatment it offered a new um, it, it essentially reinvigorated many clinicians, which I think is a really positive thing. Um, though I think that the less good thing about it is in these early days when people are adopting the new treatments, um, I think we overestimate how effective they may be. And I think that's particularly the case with uh, MDMA and psychedelic treatments. So for example, with MDMA therapy, the 
phase three data, as well as the, the combined six um, phase two clinical trials show that about two in three people get better. And that, that's, that's fantastic. But that means one in three people are not getting better. Some of those people are actually getting worse, but we don't tend to focus on that when we're, we're looking at the data. The other issue with any of these treatments is that you know, we're doing randomized controlled double-blind studies. Well, they're clearly not double-blinded if you're using a really psychoactive <laughs> drug like MDMA or psilocybin. It's pretty clear within about half an hour for both the participant and the therapy team whether the person got a placebo or whether they got the psilocybin. So that is contributing to some very large effect sizes that um, are not actually true effect sizes. And in addition to that, because there is so much hype associated with these um, treatments, uh, participants are coming in with really high expectations. And we, we know, you know, if people really believe something is gonna work, then it is more likely to work. Mm. So to get a drug commercialized and on the market, you need three phases, right? Phase one, two, and three. And, and then it, then you can get it by prescription or whatever. And at the moment, psilocybin is currently going through its phase two trial. Is that right? There's numerous phase two studies. One of the big differences between MDMA and psilocybin is that the research with MDMA has been primarily driven by MAPS. And so they've coordinated it to ensure that everybody's kind of on the same page. And so when there are investigator initiated trials, such as the one that I'm doing, they have some control over uh, what people are looking at and the way that research is being conducted so that they can pull the data and provide it back to the Food and Drug Administration in the US um, so that all of the research that they're doing contributes to the development of MDMA as a potential medicine. Uh, whereas psilocybin research is happening a bit sort of hodgepodge. There's lots of different research groups and there's less coordination. So as a consequence, the MDMA research is, is far more um, you know, it's moved far closer to getting FDA approval than psilocybin research, though there are some uh, for-profit companies now that have, that have entered this space, uh, companies like Compass Pathways, who are trying to do um, some of these phase three trials with the aim of uh, bringing the drug to market so that they will be able to um, have the patent over the way that it's used for uh, seven years. Of course, because psilocybin and MDMA uh, can, can, they're not new drugs. They've been around for a long time. So you, you can't paint it the way a, a pharmaceutical company would normally paint a drug, which gives them exclusive rights for 20 years. Uh, they can still get exclusive rights for seven years for the indication that they've done the research for. So that's kind of the way that, that MAPS is hoping to, to I guess, um, recoup some of the money that they've they've raised through philanthropic um, sources. And that because MAPS is set up with a separate um, not-for-profit company called MAPS PBC, uh, that what they're hoping is that, that MAPS PBC will sell the MDMA and then the, the money they make will go back into MAPS to be able to do further research with MDMA. Whereas a, co a company like Compass Pathways um, is, is essentially uh, trying to recoup their money from the, the the phase three trials that they're doing, which hasn't been provided through philanthropic sources. It's investors that are paid for that. And the investors are going to want their money back. Okay. That makes sense. So at the moment, MDMA is at sort of stage or phase three, and it's driven by maps and by this commercial entity called Compass Pathways. Um, 
so so uh, the MDMA just just maps, whereas Compass is just psilocybin. Oh, sorry, I missed that. Okay. Um, so what what are we seeing, and how has that changed as we've gone along that path for both psilocybin and MDMA? Uh, what do you mean by what are we seeing? So you've already talked about the fact that there's two out of three people who get better at phase two trials with MDMA. Um, how promising has the psilocybin been? I remember the phase one trials were very, very promising. And it seemed to me that at phase two, we sort of lost some of that shine and, and the data indicated it wasn't as effective as we might've hoped it would be. Is that a fair read on the, on the science? Yeah, I think that is a fair read. I think the the early results have been really promising, um, and the newer data is is showing that it is still effective, but maybe not as effective as we first thought. And I think some of the reason for that is, um, you know, the 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 issue of placebo control, um, the issue of expectations. So one way in which um, researchers have sought to overcome the issue of placebo is to use either an active placebo or in the case of the Imperial trial led by uh, Robin Currett Harris, um, they used uh, an SSRI medication. So um, patients were randomized into two arms. They either received a placebo SSRI and um, real psilocybin, or they received the real SSRI um, and placebo psilocybin. And what that research showed was that on the primary outcome measure, they were as effective as each other. It wasn't that psilocybin was more effective than an SSRI, it was as effective as the SSRI. Though on some of the other measures, it did show to be more promising than the SSRI treatment. So I think, um, you know, and I, I mentioned, um, you know, different ways of, of addressing this issue with, um, with placebo control. One way of, of looking at the true effect is to compare the intervention with current gold standard treatments. So um, I, I, I'm not sure that an SSRI treatment is necessarily gold standard for treatment resistant depression, but certainly with um, MDMA and PTSD, um, it would be interesting to pit um, you know, exposure-based CBT against MDMA therapy for PTSD and, and look at whether there are any differences in a similar way that that Imperial group looked at psilocybin and compared it with um, an existing treatment, the SSRI treatment. Mm. I bet there's a lot of people listening to this conversation right now thinking, oh my gosh, you guys are losing the, um, the woods through the trees. You know, I'm in a really bad place. Just give it to me. Let, let's move on. Um, why, or do, do you think that there's too much conservatism through this process? Um, or do you think this is the right process for us to go through? And this rigorous series of questions is the right thing to ask because ultimately people can get access to these substances on the black market and they can self-administer it, um, often in, in fairly controlled environments. Um, I guess just, just put some, some flesh on the bones for that sort of headspace. Yeah, so maybe an, an analogy would be, um, well, firstly, I, I think all all therapeutic goods need to undergo the same level of rigorous testing to see whether they're effective or not, and to make sure that they're not causing any um, significant harm to individuals. And so an analogy would be, uh, say, a um, natural you know, herbal product 
um, that's currently being sold through, um, you know, pharmacies and whatnot that hasn't undergone rigorous testing. People can still access that um, herbal medication, um, but the, the, there's, there hasn't been the research done to actually demonstrate that, that it's effective. So, um, yeah, it, it's kind of different in that it, it, people are still able to legally purchase it, but there's this... Um, different level of expectation for those, you know, herbal products that they don't have to have demonstrated efficacy before they're able to be sold. And hopefully people um, that are accessing those herbal supplements understand that um, these don't have the level of rigor um, attached to their efficacy as the, the medications that, are requ that require a, a prescription or even those sold behind the counter of the pharmacy. Mm. At the very start, you talked about the Australian study at St. Vincent's Hospital for psilocybin. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of what we're talking about will get some further um, context to it by talking about and reflecting on that study. Um, can you maybe just give us a quick overview of what we're doing in Australia for psychedelic assisted therapy? Maybe let's talk about that study first uh, and what we've learned from it. Yeah, so just to give a, a brief history, and I, I think that might be a nice way of connecting the various studies up. Um, so I mentioned that PRISM was founded in uh, 2011, 2012. We made the first attempt to get a, a clinical trial of MDMA up in 2012. It was rejected by the Ethics Committee because essentially we were trying to um, replicate what MAPS had done in the US and the Australian system is clearly different to the US system. So it was advised that we need to do this in a hospital. You know, we can't just have patients staying overnight at a private practitioner's, um, at a private practitioner's practice. And so uh, in 2015, we made another um, submission, this time to Deakin University. We'd kind of taken on board the ethics committee's feedback. And so um, one of, you know, in addition to a hospital, that also suggested that it's important that a university be involved in this sort of research. And unfortunately, the deputy vice chancellor of research at Deakin said, no, no, we, we're not doing this research at Deakin. So it never even hit the ethics committee's um, it never even hit their desk. Uh, and so in 2017, uh, PRISM was doing a bit of a regrouping exercise. Rick Doblin was in Australia again, presenting at a local conference, as was Ben Sessa, um, researcher from the, the UK, a few other international researchers were in Australia. So we're having this regrouping session and we were essentially telling, uh, telling Rick that, you know, it, thanks very much for the, the enthusiasm and, and, um, and support, but we just can't do this in Australia. Australia is clearly too conservative. And, and Rick sort of responded, and I paraphrase, you know, to, to, to drink some concrete and harden up because it took him uh, from 1986 through to 2000 and, uh, you know, 2010 to publish the first research from um, the first completed research from MDMA therapy. So it was going to take a, a, a bit longer than, than you know, the, the, what this, maybe the five years, six years that we'd been working on it for. Um, and fortunately, just a few things just clicked into place in uh, 2017, 2018. So one thing that clicked into place was uh, with my trial of MDMA, I just uh, was just starting at ECU, moved from Melbourne 
back to Perth. And so based on the experience with Deacon, I approached my deputy vice chancellor, um, provided him some of the, the data. He had a background in medicine and essentially said, why aren't we doing this research in Australia? Which was the response I was looking for. And the university's been quite supportive of um, getting this research underway here in Perth. In addition, um, Dr. Marg Ross, uh, who's a clinical psych at St. Vincent's was at that conference and um, connected with PRISM. And so that's essentially how the St. Vincent's study got started. So her background was working with patients with terminal illness and, and sort of looking at existential issues, anxiety, depression associated with dying. And she was very keen to see some of the, the research that had been recently conducted in the US on those sort of patient populations with psilocybin um, completed here in Australia. And so um, PRISM started working on Two, two research projects then, the, the Perth MDMA trial, the St. Vincent's um, psilocybin study. Uh, the St. Vincent's study is a lot bigger than the Perth one. I think it's looking at 40 something participants and it's about halfway completed now. Um, so the, the data from that will be forthcoming relatively shortly. Um, it's taken quite a while to get the recruitment started on the Perth trial. I mean, we're, we're recruiting now, but um, my university is a fairly young university, which makes it a good candidate to support this research because they want to be innovative, but we don't have the clinical governance systems in place to, um, to oversee clinical research like this. So it's, it's been hard work to put all those things in place to be able to do this in a, in a safe manner. And then, you know, it must, have, it must have been around uh, 2018 that, that Michael Pollan's book came out. And so we saw a real you know, um, a, a lot of enthusiasm around psychedelics. A lot of people read Michael Pollan's book and um, and consequently, um, we, we saw a lot of people become interested in the space. Up until Michael Pollan's book, we would approach academics and they would either say, uh-uh, you know, this is, this is not something I'm interested in, or it would be a very quiet conversation where they would say, you know, we're quietly supportive of this and we'd like to, I'd like to see it up, but I'm not going to put my head above the pulpit. I'm not going to be a principal investigator on any of this sort of research. Uh, when, when Pollan's book came out, that all kind of changed and we saw a, a lot of researchers uh, wanting to, to get involved in this now. Um, consequently, uh, there's a study of psilocybin for treatment resistant depression at Swinburne University uh, with the University of Melbourne. At St Vincent's Hospital, Sydney, they're looking to start recruitment soon for a study of psilocybin assisted therapy for methamphetamine use disorder. And then, you know, there was a, an application made, made to the TGA in 2020. Um, requesting that MDMA and psilocybin re be rescheduled in Australia as medicines. And while it was highly unlikely that that was ever going to uh, be approved, I mean, Australia is a conservative country. There's no way that we're going to be the first country in the world to make these um, drugs medicines. Uh, I, I think it, it did um, create a, a lot of positive publicity and um, you know, one of the, 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 the findings of the TGA was that more research needed to be conducted in this space before they would be willing to approve. And lo and behold, the federal government um, announced the $15 million funding round for the MRFF, uh, which is uh, part of the NHMRC funding. And so five groups have been funded to conduct research as part of that. There's also 
Um, somebody that was involved early with PRISM was Paul Lanaitsky. He's now got his own lab at Monash University that are doing a study of psilocybin for generalized anxiety disorder. Um, also MDMA for PTSD, basically a similar study to what I'm doing in Perth, but with a larger sample size. And the psychiatrist involved in that study was the same psychiatrist that, that was the principal investigator on the proposal to Deakin. So essentially, um, you know, after it being rejected at Deakin, he invested or donated, I should say, he donated personally something like three or $400,000 to Monash University so that they could do this research at Monash. Um, and I have to say, it's, there's, I think there's so much sort of happening in this space um, sort of after the MRFF rounds were announced. Um, that I'm having trouble keeping up with it all now. It, there, there is, it, you know, there is really a lot happening in Australia um, in the psychedelic research space. Particularly, you know, going back to 2017, nothing was happening in the space. Then, sort of 2019, the St. Vincent's trial started recruiting. Um, we've only started. We've only started recruiting for the Perth trial this year. The Monash GAD study has just started recruiting this year as well, and so. Um, and, you know, the Swinburne trial will likely start recruiting this year as well, I believe, as, as will the St. Vincent's Hospital Sydney study. And next year, I think we'll see a bunch of new studies starting recruitment um, that, that will come online as a result of the, the, the federal government injecting $15 million into the sector. And, um, you know, there are, there are PhD students and, and other researchers looking at this that, that didn't get any of the MRF funding. So it, it is really sort of blowing up. So I think in a few years from now, we'll start to see some of the results coming, uh, being published from this research. And I think we'll be in a much better position in Australia um, should uh, an application be made to the TGA again. Right. There's a lot to unpack in that. Um... The application made to the TGA, that was via Mind Medicine Australia, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, when you talked about Michael Pollan's book, you're, of course, talking about how to change your mind, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. I, I read that book and that sparked my interest in it. I mean, it's this white collar guy who's got a bald head, um, who's a professor at Berkeley, right? Um, and uh, I actually don't know Michael that well, to be honest. I, I mean, I, I, of course, I don't know him personally. I, I, um, I've watched one of his Netflix specials and I think there's a special coming out now on psychedelics on Netflix. So um, that might be a great thing for anyone interested to watch, but it kind of breaks down and challenges some of the assumptions that people have had on psychedelics. And it's sort of like a gentle introduction for your non-drug taking um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, general person to get exposure into what it could do. Yeah, and I think that that you know we were talking before about you know the the some people being concerned about the conflation of ecstasy, MDMA, magic mushrooms, psilocybin. I, I think one of the advantages I had coming into this field is I already knew all of those myths and false assumptions. Very early on in my involvement in Prism, I was presenting at professional conferences and trying to challenge some of those um, those myths because they are. You know, they're, they're very powerful. They've, they've stuck around for, for decades now. 
And they're essentially being driven by the war on drugs, the prohibition of LSD and, and other psychedelics in the same way that we saw reefer madness and, and how, you know, some of that stuff has really stuck around for, for 50 years afterwards. And, and you know, it's, it's clearly being challenged now with medical cannabis and, and other things. And I guess psychedelics and MDMA are, you know, at least a decade behind medical cannabis. If someone wanted to get involved in some of these trials and be a candidate to support this really important research, um, and they might be hoping that along the way they might reap some of the benefit as well as giving back to science, is there a central place they can go to put their hand up or do they need to go to each one of these study researchers individually? Yeah, the, there, there isn't any sort of centralized um, way of, of people um, applying, but there are centralized databases of the clinical trials that are being proposed or currently underway. So um, there's two main databases. One is clinicaltrials.gov, which is a US database, but it's an international one. And there's also the Australian New Zealand Clinical Trials Registry. And so if you jump onto one of those, um, uh, particularly the Australian New Zealand one, if you jump on that, type in um, psilocybin depression, it will show you which studies are, are happening, where they're up to, and um, who the key contact people are for those studies. Brilliant. I'll include those in the show notes. Um, okay, so all this research sounds interesting, but why were you drawn to it as a, an addiction expert? And how do these medicines or, or substances offer support or relief in, in that context? Yeah, so it was quite serendipitous, really. I had recently moved to Melbourne and was looking for a safe place to present some of my research on new and emerging psychoactive drugs. You know, people might have heard in the, the news things like fentanyl analogues. Um, well before all of that was happening, there was other, um, you know, MDMA analogues and, and other drugs that were emerging on a, on a grey market called legal highs or herbal highs. And so I went to... Um, I put in a submission to the Entheogenesis Australia, Con Australia, Australia Conference, um, which is Australia's, I guess, primary and premier um, psychedelic conference. Um, and that was the conference you know, I mentioned before where, where Rick Doblin came over. He's, he's presented there at multiple occasions. And um, so the, the, the conference I went to, uh, they were they had some people over from John Hopkins that were presenting essentially the data from the first um, psychedelic research that had been undertaken since prohibition. Um, there was, there was, there was one earlier study by Rick Strasman um, looking at injected DMT, but this was looking at psilocybin and it was looking at healthy participants and whether or not they could reliably induce mystical states with psilocybin. And so I was just really captivated by that, um, by the data that was being presented at this, at this conference. And certainly, I certainly wasn't going there to uh, expecting to, to hear that sort of research. And, and um, so that was super interesting. So I put in an abstract to, to present again the following year. And that was the year that, that Rick Doblin was over. Um, presenting the the first phase two trial data, and um, I think having worked with people with substance use disorder, it it's so common for them to have uh, either PTSD or some sort of trauma as a comorbidity. Um, trauma is so often 
um, dealt with through substances as a way to manage the symptoms. So people might drink alcohol to reduce the anxiety, um, use amphetamine to give them the confidence to, to go out and about when they're, when they're experiencing significant fear. And similarly, drug use can lead to PTSD where, um, you know, if you're, you're um, associating with some of those um, individuals, you know, there, there's drug-related violence and things like that, sexual, sexual assault. So, um, I was already working with people that had a pretty poor prognosis um, with people with substance use disorder and PTSD that the prognosis isn't great. And so while I would be using um, exposure-based CBT with some of those patients and, and similar protocols that have been developed, um, I think it's the Matilda Centre now, I'm not sure what they were called back when they developed them, um, but there's, there's one called COPE, for example, um, comorbid um, PTSD, uh, comorbid substance use PTSD exposure. The prognosis wasn't great. We would see, you know, probably see positive outcomes in maybe one, one, one in three people. And sometimes, I, you know, I had one client who... Um, wrote to me many years after we ceased treatment. He sort of um, ceased treatment against advice. Uh, he felt that he'd got enough from the exposure treatment, but he actually continued listening to the tapes we'd recorded and wrote to me several years later saying that, um, that yeah, that he was doing really well. He'd ceased drinking, trauma symptoms were, were no longer causing him distress. But oftentimes you don't see that. So what, mainly what I was seeing was people um, either dropping out of treatment, not getting better, um, this revolving door system. And so it was just the data alone that, that um, was being presented on the first phase two trial that was overwhelmingly positive. That, that's really what got my interest. And also knowing that MDMA wasn't a particularly dangerous drug, a lot of the concerns around MDMA like psilocybin and LSD in the past it's due to, to myths that have been perpetuated about the drug um, due to its prohibition or you know it's a way to justify its prohibition and certainly scare people away from using it once it has been prohibited as an example um, in the US there's been some um, you know uh, public uh, public service announcements on MDMA where they show brain scans which seem to indicate that MDMA is causing atrophy of the brain. It's causing brain damage and, and loss of brain matter. It turns out that research was, uh, the, the researchers had accidentally got MDMA mixed up with methamphetamine. And so the monkeys' brains that they were showing these images of were monkeys that were administered methamphetamine, not MDMA. And yet, even after those researchers retracted the data um, from, I think, Nature, uh, the, the US government continued to, to, to use those images in their public service announcements. And I, I think Australia uh, hasn't been so bad in terms of some of that stuff. But as an example, um, I, I know when Rick was over in 20, 2011, that uh, one of the, the campaigns uh, it was like a postcard campaign and it had this picture of a toilet um, essentially saying, you know, you don't know where your ecstasy is being made. It might be made with battery acid, with um, drain cleaner. Well, battery acid is sulfuric, um, sulfuric acid or hydrochloride acid. That's, that's used by pharmaceutical companies to make 
um, to make drugs. It's just not called battery acid. Um, Drano is sodium hydroxide. So, um, I, and I remember this because Rick sort of, not only did he put the picture up and, and talk to it, he had sent it to David Nichols, who is probably the foremost psychedelic chemist in the world, um, who was also horrified that they were sort of using these, I guess, deceit as a way of, of dissuading people from using, from using MDMA. But, you know, essentially the same issue is, um, with, with, I guess with all drugs, we, we're just more aware of it now with MDMA and, and psychedelics because we've not only moved through prohibition, we're now conducting research using these drugs therapeutically again, but whenever a drug is prohibited, there are myths and old wives tales mm. and all kinds of you know, media beat up um, around the potential harms of these drugs, which simply aren't true. So there's a chart that I've seen looking at the damage that different drugs do on society. I think it comes from a very famous piece David of research. David yep. Right. And it kind of looks like a spider's web. There's a central point and there's a line that goes out from the central point. And along the line, depending on how far away from the central point it goes, is the level of damage that different drugs do. And it compares all the different, well, many of the different drugs against each other, including alcohol and tobacco. And I found that chart just so, so interesting. I mean, are you familiar enough to point out some of the key themes that might surprise some of our listeners as well? Yeah, I think, so, I think it bolsters your, your, your previous comment. Yeah, so I think that research was done in uh, the first study that, that Nut did, ranking drugs on potential harms um, to, to the person using the drug as well as uh, other individuals, society more broadly, was done in 2001. So I would have been quite aware of that. Um, actually, sorry, 2010. So, so that research had just sort of come online before I'd come in and watched Rick present. Um, and and it's certainly consistent with uh, what I learned at university, um, you know, taking addiction studies and, and drug studies and uh, consistent with my clinical observations as well. Essentially, what uh, David Nutt did was get a group of experts in a room and got them to rank each drug on a number of different measures of harm and then he pulled the data together for each drug to give a, um, you know, an overall um, rating of harm for that drug. So the first study, I think, found heroin to be the most harmful. Alcohol was number three. Uh, and essentially, things like, um, you know, cannabis, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, magic mushrooms, uh, and MDMA, LSD were all down the, the bottom end of the, of the, um, of the rating. Um, the second study where they, they replicated the first study um, and, and, you know, tweaked it to make it a little bit more rigorous, did find that alcohol was the most harmful drug for both the individual and for society. Um, and then, you know, other drugs like heroin weren't that far down along with, with uh, cocaine. Um, but again, right down the bottom end of potential harm for both the person using, um, you know, in terms of acute toxicity, chronic toxicity, and also harm to others, significant others for them, as well as, you know, the community at large was, um, was these drugs like LSD, uh, magic mushrooms, MDMA. So, so there's quite, I, I, essentially what they were trying to demonstrate with their research, and I think it's, it's been done very effectively now, it's been replicated in multiple countries around the world, including Australia in 2019, was that the, the scheduling system for our drugs does not align with their potential for harm. You know, the, the, in the US, they have class A, class B, class C, which is a bit like our schedule nine. 
and there was no correlation between whether a drug was class A, B, C and its level of harm. Meanwhile, drugs like alcohol and tobacco, which were shown to have the most harm, were legally available. And, and they were just trying to challenge the existing policy. Um, and it, 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 in some ways, it, it's, it's worked. And in other ways, it backfired because David actually got fired from the UK um, ministry advising the government on drugs as a consequence of his research. Not only that, that research, but he'd also done research uh, demonstrating that, that cannabis wasn't particularly harmful. And um, I think the final, the final blow for him ever being a, a government advisor in the UK uh, was a study demonstrating that horse riding was more dangerous than taking ecstasy. Wow. And they just yeah, said, so no, we, we, we can't employ you as our scientific <laughs> advisor anymore. Yeah, yeah that, I it mean, those, it's not very consistent with the government's um, focused attempt to, to undermine some of the, the medicine or the drugs. Um, exactly. That's what the, that's essentially, um, you know, what what he was what why he was fired is um, he wasn't towing the, the government's line, um, which which, uh, you know, knowing David Nutt, he was never going to tow the, 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 the party line. Um, but he was doing it just, you know, flag flagrantly um, demonstrating how how poor the, the current policies were, and so they just couldn't have somebody like that as their as their drug czar. I guess there's so much historical context on this as well. There's a reason why um, alcohol is legal and, and cannabis is not, and there's a reason why there was so much um, concern over LSD. Uh, and um, I remember in, in Michael Pollan's book, he talks about the, was it the Reagan government who was trying to justify the war in Vietnam? And they were terrified that LSD would erode the government's influence over young people to fight in the war. And so they, you know, there are all these political reasons to why they did what they did. Um, it's quite racist, actually. And it goes back before Reagan's time. But in the Reagan, uh, the Reagan government had identified that they needed some scapegoats and they saw black Americans and hippies as the scapegoats. So, um, you know, if they make drugs public enemy number one uh, and, um, you know, arrest as many um, black Americans using these newly prohibited substances and, and so-called hippies at the time. But it goes back well before that in Australia. Opium smoking was quite popular in the late 1800s by Chinese immigrants. Um, and of course, you could also buy various opium tinctures from the pharmacy. Well, the like it sounds like the history repeating itself. Um, you know, there was concern about the immigrants stealing Australian jobs and um, you know, potentially marrying Australian white women. And so as a way to discriminate against that group, the Australian government banned the importation of um, smokable opium. So they prohibited smokable opium, but you could still go to the pharmacy and buy it in a tincture and use as much as you wanted. In the same vein in the US, the you know Harry Ainslinger um, focused on cocaine, cannabis and, and opiate drugs for, for similar reasons. So there it was around black Americans and Mexicans who they saw as using these drugs. And so again, as a way to discriminate against those, against those um, racial groups that the drugs were prohibited as a way to, to punish them essentially. And I'm sure that there are all kinds of horrible follow on that, that, you know, is, is still sitting with society because of that, you know, increased amounts of incarceration amongst those those cohorts um, yeah in how to change your mind Pollen paints out this picture of how these drugs work and it's a cartoon so um humor me while i sort of put this on the table and then i want to ask you to fact check it check it but he basically talks about 
thinking of your mind as um, a ski slope. And as you ski down the slope and you ski more in certain areas than others, you start forming grooves. And those grooves, you know, they represent um, circuits in our mind, ways of thinking, ways of viewing the world, ways of interacting, relationships. And those grooves are very, very hard to change because once they're deep in place, once these circuits in our mind are well established, it's, it's incredibly difficult jumping out of them and seeing things from a different perspective or changing patterns of behavior or thought or um, cause and effect cycles. Taking a psychedelic, particularly in this context, I think you talked about um, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, will reset some of that. It's as if there's a new fall of snow that covers that slope of your mind. And it allows you to reconfigure some of the way in which those circuits fire. Total cartoon, um, but the, the strength of it and the mechanism that he maps out in, in that illustration is that it's a bit of a hard reset of your mind and it can help you um, approach issues you may have had in the past without the same cause and effect or without the same ruminations or the same hookup holdup points. What do you make of that as a, as a way of explaining it to layman's and can you fill that out any further? Yeah, I, I, th I, I really like that. Um, metaphor actually I think it is a good metaphor I think it's quite powerful in terms of its explanatory value and, and helping people understand how these things might work but I think that the key is that's how they might work um, because the research was shut down in the early 70s and it's only really just recently restarted in the last decade or so um, proper certainly in, in, in the last you know five to ten years um, we're still sort of understanding how psychedelics work in the brain. So in the sixties, there was the assumption that psychedelics must turn on parts of the visual cortex. And that's what must cause the perceptual changes and the, some of the visual um, hallucinations that people have with their eyes closed. The more recent neuroscientific research suggests that it, um, turns off or, or it, it affects part of the brain called the default mode network, which is kind of like the brain's conductor um, and, and keeps all of the other systems in check and working together. And so if you don't have the default mode network conducting that anymore, you end up with this cacophony of noise and it's through that cacophony of noise that you might have epiphanies and, and you know, perceive that the existing belief that you're holding is, is unhelpful, it's not true. It, it may be associated with some of the creativity and also the mystical states that are induced by psychedelics. And I think um, the analogy of the, the, the ski slope works quite well for um, an explanation for how psilocybin works for depression, but with existential angst i think it's actually the mystical state that's induced by psychedelics that's quite important um, because it allows the person to feel connected with with others in the world um, that we are all one um, this sense of reverence and um, you know importance about the experience it's a mystical state is it's it's hard to put words to it um, it's one of the, the key characteristics of a mystical state is it's, it's really hard to explain with words. And the research shows even with depression that mystical states are strongly correlated with treatment outcome. So I think in, in, in this field, there's a lot of debate at the moment as to the mechanism of action, because the simple fact is we don't know. We don't know why these things work. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably a sobering point to circle, to circle back to. 
particularly early stages of research. Dr. Bright, what are you most excited by in terms of where Australia's at? Where can we expect it to go? What areas should we be watching given where we are now? Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm excited by the prospect that, that so much is happening in Australia. We, we, you know, having been somebody that's fought for this research to start being conducted in Australia, it's really pleasing to see so many different research groups now interested in it and people looking at a range of different things. There's uh, groups looking at anorexia. Um, there's groups looking at MDMA for autistic spectrum disorder. You know, it's really blown up. So I think that's 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 quite exciting. Uh, but at the same time, it's a little scary as well as things are, are blowing up. There's there's so much hype associated with everything at the moment. I guess I, I do worry about the impact that has on people that can't access these treatments yet. It's lovely, you know, that the media are, are can talk about, you know, all the fantastic stuff that's happening overseas, but people still can't really access these treatments and desperate people will do desperate things. And I, I worry that people will try to DIY psilocybin therapy, DIY MDMA therapy. And there's a, a number of risks associated with that. You know, we, we talked about the, the process of, of drug development and, um, the, the, the rigor that, that every drug has to go through. I, I think we don't know yet which patient groups not only don't respond, but actually get worse. Like there's some signals already that, that people with narcissistic personality disorder, um, borderline personality disorder may actually get worse from these treatments, not better. That's interesting. So all, all these conditions we've been talking about so far, the ones that the substances may help are mainly mood disorders so things like depression and anxiety but the personality cluster uh potentially made worse yeah and i i think um you know just anecdotally i'd say even obsessive compulsive personality disorder um could make for quite difficult experience because when people are having a challenging psychedelic experience, it's usually because they are trying to avoid some sort of material. And the more they avoid it, the more difficult the experience becomes. And so when we do work, harm reduction work at festivals with people that are having these challenging experiences in the field, a lot of it is around um, reframing it as a challenging experience. You're not having a bad trip. It's, it's a challenging experience, encouraging them to, to work through the experience and, and, and encouraging them through some curiosity and some beginner's mind to um, start to explore what it is that they're trying to avoid so that they can work through it. And people tend, tend to come out of it quite quickly once they um, are open to that. And I think someone with OCPD could be wanting to control the environment so much that that could make for a really challenging experience as well. Does PRISM get involved in harm reduction at music festivals at all? Yeah, so um, PRISM has been doing, uh, through a partnership with Harm Reduction Victoria and their service DanceWise in Victoria, primarily going out to the Rainbow Serpent Festival um, in Victoria and, and um, assisting them with the trip sitting out there through, I mean, we, we work as just one of the peer volunteers. Um, you know, we, we're, not, we, we, we're not seen as anybody different to any of the other peers that are there, but they do are lean on us at times for expert knowledge. So as an example, um, five, ten, five, five plus years ago, uh, when I was um, providing that, those services at DanceWise at Rainbow, uh, one of the paramedics came over and asked uh, if I could come and see a patient that had been brought in, carried in. Uh, they weren't sure what this person had taken. 
Um, but his, you know, his heart rate was fine. He seemed to be breathing. And so I spoke with his friends that brought him in and was able to identify that he'd mixed up his baggies and he'd taken something different than what he thought it was. And that he was going to actually be fine in about half an hour. Um, but yeah, just that sort of information, being able to provide that information to paramedics was, I guess, what we brought to the table. And certainly DanceWise brought to the table the fact that that's their bread and butter work. That's what they do. And so it's been, uh, we're really grateful to have had the opportunity to have supported DanceWise at Rainbow Serpent. And certainly for myself, it's been an excellent place to learn about these altered states of consciousness and get some hands-on work um, or some hands-on experience where, you know, it's really difficult to get that hands-on experience in Australia at the moment. So, you know, if you've got mental health workers that are, are wanting to get into this field, um, yeah, the, the, my number one suggestion would be to, to sign up with DanceWise and, and get some of that hands-on experience, um, you know, get, get your hands dirty and, and go out in the field. Thank you for the amazing work that you do through PRISM. We're very excited to see where it goes in Australia. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners are very engaged by this topic. So we will, we will keep our finger on the pulse. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Stephen Bright. You can find us at talklink.com.au. We'll see you soon.